0: Now, there's always time for a sermon, right? Boy, that... <laughs> Woo! that's a crowd dying for a sermon, isn't it? There's a big difference between thriving and surviving. You see it in different ways, I guess. We could all agree there's a difference between a marriage that, that survives, and a marriage that survives is a good thing because it's not easy, and a marriage that thrives. In fact, you know, the marketing guys have figured it out, right? Uh, It's a funny story. I was at my uh, block party planning session, which is essentially an excuse for the men of the neighborhood to get together around a campfire. And we were talking about last year's campfire, and they said, oh, yeah, we have a nickname for you and Joan. I said, well, what's that? They said, remember last year when it got dark, you guys went in, and you got um, candles, and you each came out carrying a candle, holding hands? We call you Mr. and Mrs. Cialis. So I said, you know, see, they've caught on, in a sense, to what, can a pastor say that? To what, to what a marriage that thrives looks like versus one that just survives. You see it in different ways, right? There's a difference between someone who survives in a job and thrives in a job. A difference between of life of surviving, and just kind of grinding out day after day. But you were meant, as a son or daughter of God, not to grind out your days, but to thrive. But we live in a place that makes it quite difficult, even in our kind of profoundly blessed area where we have so much. It's still hard. I mean, how, despite circumstances, good or bad, do you thrive? To get the answer, we go to this book in the Bible called Philippians. It's a book written by a guy named Paul. Many of you know, if you study the scriptures, that he was, he was a, a Jewish convert. He actually persecuted the church of Jesus. He had an a encounter with the risen Jesus, and he changed. He changed his name, and he changed his way of thinking, and he, he began to follow Christ. Now, most of the letters that Paul writes in the Bible are what would be termed corrective letters. There's something going on in a church, so he writes them a letter to the church at Corinth, Corinthians, to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians. There's something going on here. I'm going to write you a letter. You need to stop doing this and start doing that. But it's not so in Philippians. In Philippians, Paul writes a letter of thanksgiving and joy. And he says to them, no matter what your circumstances, you were meant to thrive. It was a thank you note to a church that he had started that was really coming under some difficult ways and some difficult persecution. But he tells them there's a way to have joy. And so over these six weeks, we're going to look at, no matter what your circumstance is, and I know we're all, you know, just because we have the four-bedroom colonial in a nice car, it doesn't mean we're not in difficult circumstances, Paul gives six ways, at least, that we can look at, and he he teaches this church how you can thrive in all circumstances. We're going to put into practice, I love this verse in Philippians 4.19. He says, whatever you learn, whatever you learned from me in this letter, maybe, or received or heard from me, or seen in me, put it into practice. And you could thrive. That's what we're going to try to do. Now, What makes this different talk than any other is I'm really going to kind of focus it on our Guatemalan friends, because I really felt called to talk to them about this message on our 10th anniversary together. I'd love for you to listen in, but really, this is dedicated to them, this concept uh, on our partnership. Key one to thriving, no matter what your circumstance, is a concept called the joy of anticipation. Now, some background. We all have plans, right? The early church had strategic plans. Paul had come to know Jesus and he said, I've got places and cities and towns that are important and I'm going to bring the gospel to them because that would be a strategic location and the gospel will grow from there. You and I have plans. Paul had plans. But watch what God does here. Check this out in Acts Acts 16, verse 6 through 10. Paul and his companions traveled through the region of uh, Phrygia and Galatia. They had been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Likely a town called Ephesus, a major city that would have made sense to go there now. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, which again had a city called Nicaea in it. Great place to take the gospel. But again, the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a Macedonian, a Macedonian man standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. So after Paul had seen this vision, Luke writes, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, which is where Philippi is. It's in Europe. It's the first time Paul goes into Europe. And concluded, we concluded that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Paul had a plan. We have plans for college and career, plans for spouses, plans for kids, plans for better and plans for worse, plans for sicker, plans for poorer, or richer and poorer. Now, if you know the plans of Potter's House, you know that Gladys Gwietz had plans 20-some years ago. She was an educated Guatemalan. She was going to go out and celebrate the Savior of her birth with her other Christian kind of upper-middle class friends. And she got a call from some friends that had served, some missionary American missionary friends that had served in a garbage dump, and they said, hey, you know, we were so moved by what we saw in that garbage dump, we're going to send some blankets down, would you deliver them on Christmas? And Gladys, who much like us, if we were told to go, I don't know, pick an inner city somewhere, said, I don't know, you know, that sounds kind of dangerous. I guess I'll do it because you're my friends, but I'm not doing it Christmas Eve because I need to go celebrate the birth of our Savior, the one that came to proclaim, you know, uh, freedom and, and, and blessing for the poor. I need to go do that with all my, my rich friends. So she figured she'd go a few days early, but instead she had plans. When did the blankets get there? They got there on Christmas Eve. And Gladys went down, and she spent her first Christmas Eve at the garbage dump handing out blankets because Gladys had a plan, but God had a different one. I think about my friends here from Guatemala. If you haven't been there, you don't know this, but if you know how to speak English in Guatemala, you have won the golden ticket. You can get almost any job you want. If you walk through the dump, you ask every person what they want to be, bilingual secretary, because that's where the money is. And all of my friends from Guatemala know how to speak English really well. They all could leave. And I know some of them. They have plans. I could go through, through from knowing them for years. What each of them, what God has called them to do. One of the things that we, we told in the first service, Josue is this incredibly soft, tender-hearted young man and he's trying to serve God with all his heart and he's working in the garbage dump and he's raising, he's raising his, his daughter and he's got this wife and he's been going to school at night and there was a fire in the records department of the university he attends at night. And Josue was almost done. I think he was one semester away from completion and there was a fire and he went back to the school for the next semester and he said, okay, I understand it was a fire. What does that mean for me? They said, all the records were destroyed and Josue said, okay, so where do we go from here? They said, well, you start over. And you know what Josue did? He started over. You see, we have plans, but there's different things afoot. There's ways and places and things that God is moving us. This work in your life, this work in Gladys's life, none of you guys I can picture at 16 said, I'm going to go work in a garbage dump for four years. You didn't decide to go to the garbage dump. I firmly believe that. I didn't decide. We didn't decide to go to a garbage dump. God took us, God took you to a garbage dump. Whose work was it? It was God's work. Who took Paul to Europe? Was it Paul's strategy? It was God's work. Is it yours? Think about it. I worked at Sizzler. I met a Christian girl I thought I, I thought I was a Christian. I didn't know. I, I, my wife told me, you know, my you, then the girlfriend said, you don't know anything about Christianity. I, I, I started to follow Christ. Who, say, who changed my heart? Did, did my wife change it? God changed it. It was God's work. You see, you've got to look in your life and see where is God working in my life? Where can I look back and say, see, God started that work in my life. Right there, I see that he did something there. Because God doesn't work in your life if you're a follower of his. Now, watch what happens here as God's work starts to pour itself out. This is the background for the church at Philippi, Acts 16, 13. Paul, he wanted, he had all these plans, but God tells him to go into this town of Philippi, and it, it's, a Greek, uh, it's a Greek city. It's, it's run by the Romans. They speak Greek, excuse me. And so he can't go to the temple, which is usually what he would do, where he would teach the Jews. Instead, there's no temple to go to, so he decides to head down to the river on the Sabbath, And here's what happens. He goes outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. Luke writes, we sat down and began to speak with a woman who had gathered there. That's interesting enough as it is, a man speaking to a woman publicly. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. She wasn't a Jew, she wasn't a Christian, but she was worshiping a God that she didn't know. But the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and a member of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Let me ask you a question. Did Paul save Lydia? Whose work was Lydia and her family coming to God? It was God's work. Paul would have been somewhere else. What's your story? Where, where have you been led? Where have you been taken to? Who have you run into? Where you can look and say, wait a minute, I start to see that God is at work in my life. He's moved me to a place. Maybe it's this church. Maybe it's a garbage dump in Guatemala City. Maybe it's a person. It? Where do you see him at work in your life? Because the answer to the question is, whenever you've come to some place of understanding of God, it wasn't you that did it. You didn't come to an understanding. In fact, you know, there's been a lot of press about when President Obama said, you didn't build that business. You didn't save yourself. You didn't change the dump in Guatemala City. You didn't even decide in some ways to go there. You were called by God. God is at work in your life. You're not a robot, but he's at work in your life. He was at work at Lydia's life. He's at work in my life. Now, as Paul and Silas, as they walk through town, they run into some trouble. It's, it's a longer story than I have time to go into right now. But they get themselves in some trouble. And check out what happens to them here in Acts. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. And after they had been beaten, severely flogged, is this a small punishment or a serious punishment? This is a serious punishment. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully, most of the Roman jailers would have a chain that had 18 inches, and your prisoner would be attached to you. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Let me show you what happens to our understanding of these stories. We Christianize them up. We study them in Sunday school with our kids. And so here's kind of the picture. When you hear this story, you go, Oh, I know what that looked like because I studied it in Sunday school. So here's sometimes what you think that looked like. Right? Oh, it wasn't that bad. You know, they were doing some fun stuff and God intervened. Now, we obviously don't have a picture of what this looked like, but an artist's rendering says it actually looked more like this. Those are footstocks so that they couldn't move, they couldn't get away, they couldn't position themselves in a place of comfort. In fact, if you really want to make it a little bit more real, because I really want the story to be real, I want you to enter the story. This is if you went to Philippi and you were going through some of the biblical uh, archaeology, this is, and it's probably not, but this is the place where tradition says the jail cell of Paul and uh, Silas was. Stay in the story. God's at work. So around midnight, Maybe there. Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns to God, you know, as you do when you're being tortured. And the other prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. All the doors flew open. Everyone's chains came loose. Who's at work here? And the jailer woke up. And when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword, and he was about to kill himself because you can't let the prisoners loose. Because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all still here. And the jailer called for lights. He rushed in and he fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out. And he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your whole household. Did Paul save the jailer? Who's at work in this story? See, God has got a plan. And God is at work. And he was at work in their life. And he's at work in a Guatemala City garbage dump. And he's at work in your life, Carolina. And he's at work at your life, Josue. God is at work. And so this jailer, this failed Roman prison guard, if you will, and a woman in the first century, this is so scandalous, and a woman, mind you, in the first century, they're the beginning of the church at Philippi. A woman and a washed-out jailer. And Paul starts a church with them. And this would be a church that he would love. And this would be a church that would stand by him in hard times and support him. And so this church in Philippi, Paul starts and loves. It runs into trouble and discouragement. And he speaks to them later in the book about their enemies that are coming against them. And he writes to them because they're scared and they're confused and they're starting to doubt. Maybe God isn't. Maybe we got this wrong. Maybe God isn't at work. They write they sent a guy named Epaphrodites to Paul to help him and they hadn't heard back from Epaphrodites and they started to think, well, maybe Epaphrodites died and now Paul's in prison again and this all seems to be going wrong. Nothing in my life seems to be working. Maybe God's not at work in my life. And so here you have Paul, he's beaten, he's bleeding, he's starving, he's downcast, he's rotting in a prison cell with a, a weary, downcast church writing to him, and he gives them a key, one key to thriving amidst your circumstances, amidst your fear and discouragement, a way to come over, overcome the garbage in your life, a way to overcome the garbage in your home, a way to overcome the garbage in your job, a way to overcome the garbage in your relationships. If you want to understand what it might look like, what this prison might look like today, it could look look a little like somewhere one of my friends go to every day. And in the words that I feel Mendham could write to Carolina and Josue and Mandy and Rogelio, that when I read this verse, I think of them, and that's why it's on the plaque. Paul says to this church that has stood by him like no other church, that is scared and afraid that it's all gone wrong, he says to them, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all of my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day from 10 years ago until now. Being confident in this. He who began a good work in you will carry it on till completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Paul says says to them, who began the work in you? Is this your work, Mandy and Josue and Rogelio and Gladys and Edgar? We could go on and on and on. Is it Mendham Hill's work? And when we get discouraged, when we become fearful and downcast, who began the work? Is it yours? Or is it God's? If God is at work in your life, God's work in this dump, this is God's work in the dump. It's God who reached into your life, Mandy and Josue and Rogelio and... And Carolina, and plucked you out of whatever circumstances you were in. You could have been selling purple cloth by a river, watching prisoners in a Roman jail. You could be filling up the salad bar like Sizzler and meeting a beautiful blonde girl. God is at work in your life. Listen to me, everybody. God is at work in your life. He's saving you, he's refining you, he's restoring you, he's regenerating you. And when you partner with him in this work of restoration in the world, when you are up to his work, when you are in his work, he will complete the work he started in you and he will complete the work he bought you to. That's what God does. He'll finish it. Now, there's days where you probably don't feel like it, especially if you work in that garbage dump. You know, let's be honest. We've been there for a week or two at a time. They go there day after day. I know there are days for you guys where it seems like the garbage is going to win. When the fires that take down, you know, the hovels and take so many families possessions away, when it seems like they're going to win, when the gangs steal the children away from the schools and their future t- is taken from them, when they're t- pulled out of the programs from their parents, when the flies and the methane gas that you breathe in day after day after day. I can't tell you when I've had vulnerable moments with these guys. I- I've seen them talk of their headaches. I've seen them talk about their sicknesses. I've seen them talk about how their families beg them to stop going to the garbage dump. When your back aches and your headaches and your heart aches, how do you thrive in a garbage dump? How do you thrive in the garbage in your life? Paul says to each of us this morning, to those that are in Guatemala and serve there, to each of us in the room, do you want to know how you sing hymns when your feet are in stockades? He says, there is joy in a coming day. Paul would say, I know it doesn't look like it right now. I know that things look a little dim. But here's what I'm confident of in your life. This work, this work that God started in your life, he is going to be faithful to complete it to the end. Anticipate with incredible joy that day. Paul is is encouraging them it's saying, Paul's encouraging him, do you finish your work, to, to get through to that work, anticipate what God is going to do. Set your mind on what it's going to be like when God comes through for you. It doesn't matter what circumstance you're in. If you understand the glory of the day to come, you can get through this. Now, I started to think, this seems like kind of a psychological concept. This seems like something that maybe somebody would have figured out. This seems like something someone would have studied. So I started Googling joy of anticipation, the power of anticipation, and I came across this fascinating study in the New York Times. They went out and they interviewed 1,530 Dutch people who were about to go on a vacation. And they studied them prior to the vacation and after the vacation. And check out what they discovered. This is, I just love this. The largest boost in happiness comes from the simple act of planning a vacation. In the study, the effect of vacation anticipation boosted happiness for eight weeks prior to going on the vacation. After the vacation, happiness quickly dropped right back to the baseline levels for most people. They were no happier than the people who had been on the holiday. Quote, vacations do not make people happy. But we found people who are anticipating holiday trips show signs of increased happiness, and afterward, there's hardly an effect. The joy of anticipation. This is why Christmas Day, if we're honest, is such a letdown. It's like an orgy of Christmas for 90 days, right? And then you get to it, and it's like 10 o'clock at night, and you're like, that's it? It's over? Right? Right? This is why the thought of a wonderful dinner out is often so much better than the reality of the dinner. This is why the thought of getting that new car is so much better than actually driving it off the lot. This is why the thought of having kids is actually so much better. <laughs> See, I was going to do marriage, but I knew that was going to get me in big trouble, so I went with the kids. Now, if you're here this morning, the whole Jesus thing, you're like, whatever. Take, take the joy of anticipation principle with you and say, okay, that can help me through in some hard times. That's for you. Um, that's a cool thing. In fact, this study, actually, the conclusion of the study is if you want real happiness, stop trying to go on vacation for a month at a time. Take little vacations all year. But if you're here, if you're a follower of Christ, for those of you... Paul's first point in this letter is that so often the title of this letter of joy, if you want to overcome, focus on the fact that God is going to complete his work. Carolina, one day there will be no more gangs stealing away your children in the Guatemala City garbage dump. Josue, one day the fires of the dump are going to be washed out and it won't be long until girls won't have to give their bodies away to the boys of the street to feel loved. That day is coming. Because it's God's work. It's not your work. And he's going to be faithful to complete it. He's involved in it. He started it. He'll complete it. The day is coming. It's growing near where there will be one day. There will be not one treasure, not one valued child of God digging through garbage. Look to the day. Believe in the day. Anticipate the day. The day is coming. Sing and dance and rejoice and look forward to it with assurance. It's going to be, imagine if you've been there, when no more children have to dig through that dump. You know how the Bible says Jesus was able to go to the cross? You ever wonder what gave him the strength? You know, we tend to go, he's he's Jesus. Do you know how Jesus was able to walk up the hill to Calvary and take the brutal death that he did? But for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The anticipation of what he was doing in your life, the anticipation of unifying with, you, with God. That allowed him to walk through the darkest of days. Jesus on the cross, Paul in the jail, able to go forward and thrive because of the joy of anticipation. To my friends at Menham, I want you to know something. This has been my life verse for 25 years. I became a believer when I was 18. I can't tell you, anybody know the old Steve Green song? I always asked him to play it, but when, on, in hindsight, it's so cheesy now when you go back and listen to it. But there's this song, He Who Began a Good Work in You. And it's just, you know, I'm a sheep like you, and I get caught in some stupid thickets sometimes. You know, I can get kind of down on myself, I mess up, I fall short. Sometimes it's, you know, I'm not the husband I want to be. I'm not the father I want to be. I'm not the pastor I want to be. I'm not the son of God I want to be. And guilt starts to come in on me, and I start to go, I'm a phony. I've never lived up to what I should be. You ever, does anybody else ever feel this way? And that voice just starts to, and then all of a sudden, when that voice starts saying, what kind of Christian are you? What kind of, you know what I start to hear in my head? He who began a good work in you. I can't sing. It sounds better than that. But that's the story of God in my life. The work that God started in you, he's going to complete it. If it's his work and the salvation of my soul is definitely that, he's going to complete it. You may not be perfect yet. In fact, I know you're not. But guess what? You're going to be. And if you look forward to that day, you can walk through anything. And finally, Men, this is not just a 10-year celebration of a relationship with Potter's House. This is a 10-year celebration of what God has done in this church. His work with us and in us. Ten summers ago, God changed this church. It wasn't planned. We didn't read it in some strategy magazine. We didn't take it out of a book. God, out of nowhere, took a church that had little to no interest in mission and set it on fire. But I can't tell you how many pastors ask me, how, would, how did you guys change your church? I'm like, we didn't do anything whose work is this? It's his, and he's going to be faithful to complete it. It's all over the place. You see it in our our work with Family Promise. You see it in our work with the poor in Dover. You see it in our work with, with the guys from Market Street Mission. God is at work. This is his work, and I know you might get tired. I know how hard you work. I think of my friend Greg all the time. I can't tell you how hard Greg works, I I, I don't want to brag on him, but there's so many of you that just do so much. I know you get tired sometimes. I know it can be frustrating or disappointing. I know sometimes the garbage piles up. I know things in your own life might not be perfect. But here's what Paul would say to you and I. This is God's work that is going on here. And what is happening, he is going to complete it in you and in I and in us and in them. That's the word of God. And if you would anticipate that day Because the day is coming And believe with all of your hearts That the day is coming When there'll be no more addiction When there'll be no more generational poverty There'll be no more inequality There'll be no more sins passed down From the Father for generation to generation There'll be no more family disunity There'll be no more mental illness There'll be no more sickness and illness And cancer and death The day is coming Listen to me, please believe this. This is the truth. This is how you can get over everything. The day is coming when good will conquer evil. The day is coming when the truth really will real set you free. God is at work in you. Look back, He that began a good work in you, and you, and you, and you, He's going to complete it in you. Let's pray. Lord, from a company of doubters who sometimes try to grind out a work on our own, what a word you have for us this morning. Father, I pray for my Guatemalan friends that on the hard days, their heads might be lifted by the thought that God started this work. It's not their work. They don't need to finish it, but that you're going to finish it. Lord, we pray for their health. Lord, we pray for the the treasures. And Lord, for our church, this work that you started in our church, God, would you lead us and direct us more? Would you show us what it is? Would you show us where to go? Would you show us where to bring the gospel? And Lord, in each of our own hearts, as my friends struggle in their marriages and in their jobs and with their kids, Lord, would you open our eyes to the place, the reason that there, we were brought into this room today and understand that you started a good work in us and you'll be faithful to complete it. In the great name of Jesus, we pray and celebrate. Amen.